0: Once upon a time, we had the nature versus nurture debate, and we assumed that the brain stops developing at some finite point when we're young. With recent science, things have gotten more interesting than that and more hopeful. The neuroscientist Richard Davidson has helped to reveal a surprising give and take between emotion, behavior, and biology at every age. He made his discoveries by studying the brains of meditating Buddhist monks. Now he's testing new approaches to autism and ADHD, even to nurturing kindness and self-reflection in children and adolescents. Richard Davidson and others are shifting the psychological paradigm that focuses on fixing what is wrong. This is about practicing life-enriching behaviors and in so doing, rewiring our minds
1: based upon everything we know about the brain and neuroscience, that change is not only possible, but change is actually the rule rather than the exception. And it's really just a question of which influences we're going to choose for our brain.
0: Investigating healthy minds. I'm Krista Tippett. This is On Being from APM American Public Media. Richard Davidson founded the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds in 2008 at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He's a professor there of psychology and psychiatry, and he's director of the Weissman Laboratory for Brain Imaging and Behavior. I interviewed him in 2011. I've read several accounts where you've talked about or written about how you've had this lifelong conviction that went back to your teenage years, that the mind... Here's one way you said it. Underlies all that is important for flourishing and happiness. Um, where, mm-hmm. you know, where did that interest in the mind come from? Do you know?
1: Well, uh, I, I, I actually don't know exactly, although uh, it just seemed to make a lot of sense to me early on in my life that our minds were really crucial to our uh, how we related to everything around us and uh, that we... Uh, actually had an opportunity by uh, uh, altering our minds to uh, alter our realities and, and the world in which we lived. And uh, I know it, uh, it, you know it sounds a little trite, but uh, that conviction was present um, really uh, from high school on. And uh, it's something that certainly motivated me in college and, and subsequently.
0: But it's it's interesting to me that you also always w- were interested in thinking about it also in terms of science, right? In terms of biology yes, somehow.
1: It was. It was. I, I had a passion for science since I was a kid, and, um, you know, I, I was involved in lots of uh, science-related activities. I was a ham radio operator when I was 9 or 10 years old and um, built uh, electronic components and um mm. Uh, and volunteered in a sleep laboratory when I was in high school and uh, put on uh, electrodes and cleaned electrodes uh, in the afternoons. Uh, And uh, I remember very distinctly subscribing to Science News, which is a kind of popular but serious um, summary of uh, science that comes out each week. And I read it religiously starting in high school. And I used to actually cut out little articles and file them away. And uh, uh, it was just part of my life uh, from very early on. Mm-hmm.
0: And you've said it was not until the 90s that you kind of came out of the closet with your interest in in actually um, exploring, pursuing contemplative practice um, together with science.
1: Yes. But,
0: I mean, yes. you know, I did go back and look at... Um, a book that you published um, together with someone else named Davidson in 1980. Was he related to you, Julian? No, no. Uh,
1: unrelated. Okay, um, Psycho- b-
0: Psychobiology of Consciousness. And uh, I guess that's when you were still in the closet. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, yeah.
0: You know, the tone of that is so different. Um, it starts with basically an acknowledgement that the relationship of consciousness to biology, that there's little progress has been made. But what's, what's so interesting also to me was... It's all about EEG biofeedback, that the tools were, seem so primitive now. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. It was 1980. Um, right,
1: exactly. And and that's that was actually part of my decision to, uh, in fact, not pursue research on the neuroscience of meditation in the early part of my career because uh, I clearly perceived the tools that were available to us in those days, as very coarse and primitive Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, really uh, insufficiently sensitive to capture uh, what I was experiencing as a practitioner. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was pedestrian research on meditation.
0: right. So that's pre-MRI.
1: Yes, very much pre-MRI. It was actually, in many ways, pre-neuroscience. Really? Well, neuroscience as a Identifiable field really started around 1976, and I—that's when I ended graduate school.
0: And I mean, it seems to me also that a term that that is very common, uh, also among lay people in our culture, is this idea of being hard, that we're hardwired for things. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say one of the things—this is just one way I would put it—is one of the things that you. Are suggesting in your research over time is that we can also rewire. When did we did science and popular culture start thinking about hardwiring? Has this been a parallel development?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you look at the history of the behavioral sciences and the intersection of behavioral sciences with biology, the 1960s was the heyday of behaviorism when uh, the environment was actually emphasized as being the primary cause of our behavior. And there was no attention to the mind and no attention to biology. And uh, the, the pendulum was, was very far to the extreme of, of considering what is inside the head to be really irrelevant. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and we begin as uh, a tabula rasa, uh, an empty slate, Uh, And uh, the environment, uh, through conventional mechanisms of learning, uh, determines who we are. Uh, And then, in many ways, I think the pendulum swung in the opposite extreme for quite some time, where um, uh, everything was attributed to our genes. And uh, there were uh, voices among public intellectuals who were calling into question any Programs, for example, to um, like Head Start and other programs to help disadvantaged individuals, um, because the claim was that it, that it's all in our genes anyway, and there's nothing much we can do about it. Right. Uh, that that's a, a bit of a caricature, but it's um, you know I think it really does contain the, the kernel of truth in in some of those statements, uh, and I think that uh, what modern neuroscience is teaching us is that in fact there is a lot of plasticity. Uh, that change is indeed possible, and um, the evidence is more and more strongly in favor of the importance of uh, environmental influences in shaping um, brain function and structure, and even shaping the expression of our genes. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that genes are unimportant, it's just that they're much more dynamic mm-hmm. uh, than we previously understood.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, a conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today, investigating healthy minds. Richard Davidson's original research with monks grew out of a collaboration with the Dalai Lama, and it continues to this day. This research has centered on the brains of Buddhist monks, who some describe as Olympic meditators, people who've spent tens of thousands of hours in contemplative practice. So is it right that in 1992, um, the Dalai Lama sent you a fax inviting you to apply your ideas to study the brains of monks? Is that right? Uh,
1: yes. He invited me to, to come meet with him in India mm-hmm. and uh, to explore the possibility of uh, using the tools of, of what then was modern neuroscience to study uh, what might have changed in the brains of these long-term meditation practitioners.
0: And I mean, you're you're now known as a pioneer in this field of affective neuroscience, which is n- now I think larger than studying the brains of Olympic meditators. But um, but began with that. I mean, just tell me what that encounter um, and learning and and that study. What did that open up for you? Um,
1: uh, well, uh, first, uh, the, the affective neuroscience. Just to clarify terms, is a phrase that uh, has been used to describe research on the neuroscience of emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there, there's another hybrid discipline that we're uh, uh, cultivating called contemplative neuroscience, right. which is um, the study of uh, the impact of contemplative practices on the brain. Uh, and so I think you're really more referring to the latter, to, to contemplative neuroscience. Uh, When I met the Dalai Lama for the first time in 1992, uh, the Dalai Lama challenged me at that meeting in a very direct way and said that, uh, uh, you know, you've been using the tools of of modern neuroscience to study qualities like depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. and fear and disgust. Why can't you use those same tools to study qualities like kindness and compassion? And uh, there really was no good answer to that question other than that the study of kindness and compassion is hard. But uh, it was hard when we began to study fear and anxiety. And uh, we've made, uh, as a field, a tremendous amount of progress in understanding the brain mechanisms that underlie those uh, emotional qualities. And so uh, uh, I made a commitment to the Dalai Lama on that day in 1992, and I made a commitment to myself that uh, I was going to do everything I could to put compassion on the scientific map. And um, very much reoriented my research uh, from that point on.
0: I think you've also noted that whereas um, science had developed and has developed a very nuanced vocabulary on negative affects like, or, or depression, hostility, um, that... That there wasn't even a very sophisticated, there wasn't at all a sophisticated way of talking about or thinking about or analyzing something like compassion.
1: That That's true. And I would say there still isn't a very sophisticated vocabulary. Uh, uh, there was a time, uh, and in fact, it's still represented in this way in many reviews and textbooks. There was a time when the repertoire of human emotions was described. And it was described as uh, six emotions, um, uh, all of which are either neutral or negative, mm. and then there's just one positive emotion. Uh, and and what was was uh, that compassion? No, that it, was happiness. Happiness. I mean, it, oh,
0: yeah, no, that's that's simple.
1: Yeah, the classic six are happiness, fear, anger, disgust, uh, sadness, and surprise. Mm. Those are the six that have been classically Studied as so-called uh, discrete basic emotions. So surprise can be either positive or negative. The others are negative, and then there's one positive emotion. Uh, and when you know mm-hmm. the long, when we talk to the the people in the contemplative traditions about this, uh, I mean, they just are amazed that yeah. uh, uh, that this is the best you can do in Western psychology.
0: Right. <laughs> What's your working definition of compassion then? At this point,
1: uh, my working definition of compassion is that it is a uh, a motivational state that is associated with the propensity to relieve the suffering of others.
0: Right, so that it's not just feeling oriented; that it is also has action potential.
1: Yes, exactly. It's it's both a feeling quality and an associated action disposition, mm-hmm. as we would say.
0: You've also said that very much like language, you think that we're born with the capacity to be compassionate.
1: I do, and I, I think it's very similar to uh, uh, to the way language is conceptualized as part of our innate repertoire. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's automatically expressed in, in any environment. Uh, there have been, for example, case studies of feral children who have been raised in the wild, uh, in the absence of a linguistic community, and we know that in those children, uh, they actually don't develop a normal capacity for language. And in the same way, uh, I think it is with compassion. I think compassion requires uh, a uh, a nurturant community for it to arise be nourished be cultivated Uh, and in the absence of that kind of nourishing supportive early environment um, it can be stifled Mm -hmm.
0: Um, right but the way language gets passed on is our mother tongues at least is not so much people telling us about it but just doing it around us and then we and i think it's
1: And I think it's the identical Mm -hmm. uh, situation for compassion. The best way to to teach compassion is to embody it, Mm -hmm. not to teach it explicitly, but simply to be it. Uh, And it's through the being that the individuals in the vicinity of that person who's exuding compassion will implicitly understand and be affected by it and will learn from it. So, and that's what's mm-hmm. what's so delicious about being in the presence of the Dalai Lama. Right, right, right. <laughs>
0: So I do want to get this connection right between the contemplative neuroscience and the affective neuroscience, because it, it seems to me, but I want you to correct me if I'm not getting this right, that you learned things from these meditators, which you, you are then now applying to, um, to regular human beings and also to disordered emotions, to some of these negative states uh, but you, I mean, I think think the title of your center, the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds, points at the fact that you start you you see this as the cultivation of positive qualities rather than just this focus on eradicating negative qualities. So now, nuance what I just said, and tell me the yes. tour story.
1: Well, I, I think your uh, characterization is, is is quite accurate. Uh, We start from the conjecture that uh, health is not simply the absence of illness, uh, and uh, that's true for both mental health as well as physical health. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the cultivation of positive qualities doesn't simply mean uh, the elimination of of negative qualities. Uh, uh, And so that's why the name of our center was very intentionally chosen And um, we're interested in what positive qualities um, constitute a healthy mind. And uh, once uh, those are identified, how can we nurture them so that they become more prominently and more widely expressed uh, in our culture?
0: And, you know, again, so what you learned from studying the brains of monks and meditators, you learned things about neuroplasticity, which really were very New, right, and exciting for the entire field of neuroscience. Tell me what that is, what that, why that's meaningful, and how that applies to this work you do with um, other people.
1: Well, the work with long-term practitioners that we that we've done, as well as that we're continuing to do, uh, is important because uh, it sort of defines the further reaches of human. Um, Plasticity and transformation,
0: which just means that our brains can change, right? I mean, simply
1: put. Simply put, yeah, and sort of the the further extremes of of brain changes, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and so when we study these experts, we see things in their brain that have not been reported before in human brains. So, like what? Um, Well, they're you know they're sort of technical, if you will, but they they for the neuroscience community, they're very meaningful. Uh, there is a brain rhythm that is called gamma mm-hmm. uh, oscillations, and gamma oscillations are recorded uh, through the electrical activity of the brain and When you observe gamma oscillations in a uh, a normal conventional person who has not gone through this kind of training, uh, you see the oscillations for very short periods of time, typically one second or less. Uh, What we observed in the long-term practitioners during certain kinds of meditation, particularly meditation on compassion, uh, was that these gamma oscillations uh, persisted for a much longer period of time than has ever been reported. They persisted for minutes continuously at very high amplitude. Uh, And this was just something that had not been observed before.
0: Do we know uh, how those that kind of oscillation, how that expresses itself in personality or in life or how does we that don't uh,
1: okay. we we don't at this point mm-hmm. we We know a little bit about what the phenomenological correlates are in these long- term practitioners, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the clearest is um, a quality of clarity of their perception. Mm. Uh, they are very good at providing granular accounts of their experience because they spend a lot of time interrogating their own minds. And actually the word meditation in Sanskrit, one of its meanings is comes from the word familiarization. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we can think of these individuals as being just utterly familiar in a very deep way with their own mind. Uh, And that familiarization allows them to provide very granular reports. And When they give those reports, it turns out that um, they uh, could scale uh, the extent to which uh, their experience has this quality of clarity, Uh, and uh, that quality of clarity turns out to be very highly correlated with uh, the presence of these gamma oscillations. Okay. Uh, The more clarity, the more gamma. Okay.
0: Listen to this interview with Richard Davidson again and find ways to download it at onbeing.org. There you'll also find some meditation exercises we've gathered that our listeners have loved, used, and shared with others. Sylvia Borstein's guided loving-kindness meditation is a favorite. Also, contemplative physicist Arthur Zions' guided bell sound meditation. Try them out. Change your brain. You might be interested, too, in a piece on our blog suggesting that you don't have to be an Olympic meditator to benefit deeply from this kind of exercise, even to find real relief from pain. The best way to stay on top of everything we do is by subscribing to our email newsletter and podcast. Just look for the updates link on our homepage. Again, that's onbeing.org. Coming up, more on how Richard Davidson is drawing lessons from the brains of monks and pointing ADHD and autism treatment, even basic psychotherapy, in new directions. Also, his reflections after these first few decades of neuroscience on the enduring puzzle of human consciousness. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM American Public Media.
1: On Being is supported in part by funding from the Knorr Foundation, exploring meaning and commonality in human experience. Online at knorrfoundation.com.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, investigating healthy minds with Richard Davidson. He is a pioneer of what is called contemplative neuroscience. He's provided new evidence of neuroplasticity, the capacity of the human brain to keep changing. And he is shifting the paradigm of understanding how emotions, behavior, and biology interact throughout our lives. Richard Davidson made groundbreaking discoveries through studying the brains of Buddhist monks, long-term meditators, at the Wastman Laboratory for Brain Imaging and Behavior. That's at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he teaches. In 2008, he also founded the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds there to test his discoveries more broadly. You're now applying, you're now doing work with children, with also with affective and anxiety disorders, with things like ADD, with autism, with asthma. So mm-hmm. tell me how what you've learned in all that changes these, these approaches, what you're developing here.
1: Well, um, one of the things about all of these uh, different conditions uh, that you describe, like mm-hmm. ADHD, anxiety disorders, affective disorders post-traumatic stress disorder, autism, uh, they all involve uh, differences in certain aspects of brain function. And uh, we know now that these contemplative practices can change brain function right. uh, and brain structure. And uh, uh, if that's true, then um, perhaps we can use these methods, and it's really um, a family of methods to uh, change the mind uh, and through that change the brain uh, in ways that may be beneficial for uh, helping individuals who are suffering from some of these disorders. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's kind of the the simple-minded intuition which underlies this. We also hope that we can use some of these methods preventatively. And so uh, that uh, is really behind a lot of the work we're doing with kids, because we feel that if we can teach kids some of these simple strategies, uh, they will have a toolbox from which they can um, select to help them with adversity that they uh, may encounter as, as they go along. Uh, and so we're actually doing work now starting in preschool. Um, with four and five year olds to uh, um, provide them with uh, these kinds of tools, to train them in these ways, uh, and then to follow them over the course of development to see if learning these strategies early in life can make a difference in um, facilitating a more positive trajectory of development and minimizing uh, deleterious outcomes. This
0: is a moment in one
1: of Richard Davidson's programs
0: with preschool children. His colleague Lara Pinger is with two children in a tussle. Put
2: your hand to how it feels inside. Where does it hurt? Where does it feel tight? Right there, and in your throat. Okay, watch me. Put your hand on your belly and take in a breath with me. You ready? Blow it out.
0: And you've just started those those projects, so you don't have. A lot of years of data behind them at this point,
1: right? We've just started them, but I must say that it's been uh, amazingly gratifying mm. to uh, to just anecdotally see their their um, their effects. I was in uh, I, mean, I, I live in Madison, Wisconsin. It's a a kind of a small, closely knit community in many ways, and uh, uh, I was in. Um, uh, actually a Trader Joe's uh, not too long ago and ran into a parent who was a parent of uh, one of the uh, preschool children who is part of our study. And I didn't know this person, but right. they they knew who I was and they just came over to me uh, and wanted to tell me two things. They wanted to thank me for what we were doing because they've noticed um, positive changes in their kid, uh, and they also wanted to know where they can learn these methods, because uh, they found that uh, it was clearly so helpful to, to their child.
0: And so, when you say there's a family of methods, um, I mean, is some kind of contemplative or meditative practice always involved? And, and what else? What, what else is in this family of methods? This toolbox?
1: Well, uh, there, the the idea here is simply that there are literally hundreds of different kinds of meditation practices. Yeah. Uh, And so often in the West, we have this idea that meditation is one thing and that um, every kind of meditation will produce the same kinds of effects. And that's just simply not true. Uh, uh, The um, contemplative traditions from which we draw uh, have literally hundreds of different kinds of practices, and they are designed uh, for different kinds of people or for a person in different Uh, situations Uh, they are understood within their own traditions uh, to produce uh, different effects. And uh, biologically and behaviorally in the laboratory, they produce different effects. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the way I often talk about it to lay audiences is that the word meditation is kind of like the word sports. Um, there, <laughs> right, okay. there are many different kinds of sports. They can be performed. Some are more active. Some are less active. Some are performed in groups. Some not. And, and the same is true of meditation. It's
0: a big umbrella term. Yes. hmm but, I mean, so, what would you do with young children like that?
1: well, in with young children, our work is focused on two kinds of practices, two classes of practices within within each class, there are a number of different types of practice, but the two classes are one is designed to cultivate kindness and the other is designed to cultivate mindfulness mm-hmm. um and by mindfulness here we mean. Um, moment to m- by moment, non-judgmental attention or awareness.
0: Okay. Yeah, attention and self-awareness, right? And it was since leading to this kind of a kind of self-regulation.
1: Self-awareness, mm-hmm. but also other awareness. Mm-hmm. So not not just self-awareness, but certainly. Self awareness would be included, including awareness of what's going on in one's body, mm-hmm. which can be very helpful in understanding what emotions you're experiencing. Um, but also very much uh, uh, focused on on other, being aware of others, being aware of one's environment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there are meditations on sound uh, that are done uh, to help children learn to pay attention to. Not just the inside, but the outside as Mm. well.
0: Mm. And what about the kindness? How do you how do you cultivate that?
1: Well, you know, it's cultivating that in children is we use very different approaches than we do with adults. There are a lot of props that are used. There are books uh, uh, that we use as as external props. Uh, There are um, opportunities for sharing. Uh, actual opportunities uh, uh, as well as more um, classical uh, um, mental kinds of training where the children uh, envision other kids in their classroom and uh, envision times when they may have been Hmm. um, not feeling so good and um, generating the wish to help them be happier uh, and help relieve their suffering.
0: You're You're teaching them to be reflective. I mean, right, that would be one way to talk about what's going on in both of those instances with mindfulness and kindness.
1: Yes, uh, there's definitely a reflective piece in each. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
2: Blow it out. Go ahead, tell him how you're feeling when you see him so sad.
0: Sad?
2: You feel sad too? Mm. Show me where in your body you feel sad. Right here. Right here you feel sad in your body. It doesn't feel so good, does it?
0: This audio is from a documentary about Richard Davidson's work. Read our Q&A with the filmmaker at onbeing.org.
2: Know what happens to your body when you're paying attention? Quiet. Get slow. You can pay attention on the outside and you can pay attention on the inside. So the first thing we're going to do today is pay attention on the inside. Is everybody ready?
0: I'm Krista Tippett, this and this is On Being, is conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and religion. ideas. Today, really investigating healthy minds really with neuroscientist really Richard angry. Davidson.
2: Now, this jar is like your mind when you're angry and upset. And then we see the angry thoughts settling down.
0: I mean, I know you're also working with adolescents, which is very interesting and I would think that then the methods would be different I mean that's a tumultuous time for the human brain and mind isn't it I mean so how how do you adapt this Um, yeah
1: those are all wonderful questions and um, you know this is a stage where I think we and others need to do a lot of tinkering uh, and to figure out exactly what may work uh, um, best, but also I quickly uh, add that I don't think there's any one strategy which is gonna work best for all individuals. Mm -hmm. One of the goals of this kind of scientific work is to better match differences in cognitive and emotional style, if you will, with strategies that are maximally effective for that person.
0: You might, my daughter, when she was 12 or 13, did some science project at school on the adolescent brain. <laughs> and she learned how difficult it was to be. <laughs> this gave her good, great excuses for a while when she was being emotional,
1: <laughs> um, well, impulsive, that
0: she couldn't help it because she had an adolescent brain.
1: <laughs> that's good. Well, that's, um, you know, it's probably true. Uh, <laughs> how old is she now? Well,
0: now she's 17, and actually mm. I think her her brain is in a much better place at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: well, there's, uh, yes. you know, the the, the the dilemma of adolescence is that puberty is occurring earlier and earlier, yeah. yet the rate at which our um, regulatory systems in the brain mature uh, has remained the same for thousands of years. Uh, and so uh, we actually have a longer period in human history today than we've ever had uh, between the onset of puberty and the onset of um, the the full maturation of regulatory systems in the brain. So
0: it's not just that it starts earlier. It lasts longer.
1: Yes. It, oh, it lasts much that's, longer.
0: Oh, that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. You know, we now have like a 10-year period. Uh, it's longer than ever before in human history.
0: Hmm. So, you know, I know that you've been honored by the American Psychological Association. And I wonder... How does your work um, inform the work of psychotherapy? Um, You know, are you learning things about actually changing the brain, about influencing the mind and influencing ourselves biologically with behaviors that might, I don't know, circumvent, transcend, or somehow enrich... um, the ways we already know to work with who we are and how healthy we are and how we live?
1: Well, you know, I'd like to believe that um, some of the work that we do may have some uh, implications or relevance uh, uh, for kind of on the ground, uh, in the trenches, um, psychotherapy or related strategies for behavior change in several ways. One is... Uh, a kind of meta level, which helps a client or patient understand uh, that based upon everything we know about the brain and neuroscience, that change is not only possible, but change is actually um, the, the rule rather than the exception. Mm. And... Um, uh, it's really just a question of which influences we're going to choose for our brain, but our brain is is wittingly or unwittingly being continuously shaped. Right. Uh, another thing is uh, the idea of practice, um, the classical model of Western psychotherapy, which is you know a client coming to a therapist for an hour a week for right. you know a fifty-minute session um, uh, without doing daily practice in between just is, uh, you know, flies in the face of everything we know about the brain and plasticity. That's
0: really interesting,
1: isn't it? It is. Yeah. Uh, so if we, if we want to make real change, that's not a good prescription for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we want to make real change, uh, more systematic practice is necessary, in my view. And this is something that, that comes directly from neuroscience. Uh, And I think that certain kinds of psychological uh, therapies are now understanding that. And so certain kinds of cognitive therapies, for example, do assign specific kinds of homework or practice for people to engage in on a daily basis. Uh, So I think there's growing recognition of that.
0: And again the the different focus that you're taking that we talked about at the beginning, that the focus that was different for scientists, but also the focus that's different from psychology, psychotherapy, that it's focused on what's wrong and addressing that. I mean, the practice would be about cultivating positive qualities, not just remembering, recalling, delving the, the, into the,
1: pain. Right. I, I think that's very important. And I think that most people still don't think of qualities like happiness as being a skill Mm -hmm. Uh, rather than uh, it's typically conceptualized as a fixed trait. And some people have more of it. Some people have less of it. But uh, if you think about it more as a skill, uh, then it's something that can be enhanced through training. And uh, fundamentally, uh, I, I, I think that the, the kind of mental exercise that we're talking about is no different than physical exercise, right? Uh, and people understand that uh, they can't just do two weeks of physical exercise and then and expect helping. the benefits to to be to remain for the rest of their lives. Uh, and the same thing with with mental exercise.
0: I was also thinking about you know when you talked earlier on that there were six emotional states and one of them was happiness but Mm -hmm. I think about a conversation I had with Mathieu Ricard who's one of the people whose brains you've studied and who I think you learned a lot from Who talks about happiness in fact as a mental state that can precisely take in all emotions and experiences including negative experiences it's how you live with those not a feeling that you have all the time
1: Right, and I think that that's a uh, a very different conception of happiness, one that is a more enduring um, and uh, I think more genuine in the sense that it's a kind of happiness that is not dependent on external circumstances.
0: Right, right, that can take in all whatever comes at you, <laughs> right. whatever circumstances. Absolutely. a book you wrote about the psychobiology of consciousness back in 1980. I'm curious about the distinction you make between these terms, brain, mind, consciousness, and if that has changed over time.
1: Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's a tough one uh, for so many reasons. Uh, You know, putting on my... uh, scientific hat, uh, the, the, certainly the view of mainstream modern neuroscience is that the mind and consciousness are uh, somehow emergent properties of the brain. Many philosophers refer to this as the hard problem, because yeah. uh, we still have no idea how the subjective qualia of consciousness uh, actually emerge from the physical stuff of the brain. Uh, and so, many of us, myself included, bracket that problem,, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we still can make progress on lots of other things without having to solve that problem. Um, uh, you know the, uh, but I also straddle a number of different worlds, and uh, you know, I spend quite a bit of time uh, with the Dalai Lama, who has a very different view of mind and brain and consciousness. Right. and uh, uh, has the view that uh, at least in some residual form uh, consciousness can exist without the brain. It may still be some form of uh, energetic matter yet to be understood and determined, uh, but you know not the brain as we conventionally understand it. And you know the honest truth is I have no idea what to do with those kinds of okay. um, suggestions, other than to. Uh, practice remaining agnostic and distinguishing between what is hard-nosed scientific fact and what is simply part of our conventional scientific dogma or hegemony. Right. And um, the Dalai Lama in the beginning of his book uh, on science and spirituality, the book uh, entitled The Universe in a Single Atom, says that if there's any tenet of Buddhism which is directly contradicted by scientific fact, that he's prepared to give that up. Um, but he makes a very clear distinction between scientific fact and scientific assumption. Right. But it, it takes a lot of active work to uh, remain uh, in the ambiguity of uh, not knowing.
0: Right. I mean, you use terms when you speak and write about your work that, that, have, um, that are terms that also occur in theological and philosophical realms, you know, free will, transformation. Do you use the term spiritual technology or, you know, are you familiar with that term? Is that a a way you might talk about some of these tools and practices that you're using?
1: Potentially. I I don't think I've used that phrase, but certainly uh, I have talked about the um, range of uh, practices, really the mechanics of practice that are so richly described in some of the contemplative traditions and the potential value uh, that many of these practices might have for uh, modern science and uh, our modern understanding of the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I certainly, the, the idea of transformation is one that to me meshes perfectly well with uh, conventional scientific understanding. Uh, I, I have no problem with that uh, and... Um, you know, I think that uh, that really uh, is a natural byproduct of understanding many of these constructs as the product of skills that can be enhanced through training.
0: So again, if how you thought about what it meant to be human back in the 60s, 70s when you started doing this, um, how has this well, open that changed that for you?
1: Yeah, it's given me, I think, a much, um, I feel a much uh, richer and uh, more encompassing a uh, sense of what it means to be human. I think that uh, uh, it has underscored for me the preciousness of every human encounter, uh, and so my my sense of being human, I think, has been um, really uh, dramatically expanded. Uh, and at the same time, I think, you know, my sense of time has, in certain ways, really slowed down so that mm-hmm. I can stop. Uh, and and look at each moment uh, and appreciate it for what it might afford, um, rather than uh, uh, sort of rushing on to the next thing.
0: I remember talking to John Kabat-Zinn about that. That, which is a very striking statement to make in twenty-first century ears, that by paying attention in a moment, you actually slow down time.
1: Yeah, I think you radically slow down time, and um, you can. Um, notice more things per discrete moment uh, because you're just more open, uh, and and I think that leads to a uh, a subjective sense of of time really slowing down.
0: Okay. Um, yes, just I have a question from behind the glass. My producers were tweeting this behind the glass, mm-hmm. um, and someone asked on Twitter what the consequences of this practice can be for multitasking this kind of way we live now?
1: Well, you know, one question uh, uh, is whether we actually um, ever are truly multitasking in the sense of literally doing two things simultaneously or whether uh, we are rapidly oscillating um, between the things that we are doing when we're multitasking, but the the larger issue I think is um, is really just being present with whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, and so if if what we're doing is multitasking, right. you know, being present with the multiple tasks that are that are before us, um, you know, I have a wonderful picture of um, Matthew uh, Ricard uh when he comes to Madison he stays at our house and he was um sitting in the living room with a laptop computer on his lap, uh looking at the computer and uh he was talking on a cell phone uh and uh he also had a book right next to him right. open right. uh and it was um this Tibetan know, this Buddhist wonderf- monk. Yes, this wonderful picture of this Tibetan Buddhist monk who is, you know, our digital monk um, engaged in in multitasking, but you know, I think uh, doing doing it in a way which uh, was really quite present to uh, all of the various tasks in which he was engaged. So uh, that may not be a very satisfying answer, but I do think it's possible. I've seen I've seen it in others. I've seen Matthieu do it. I've seen the Dalai Lama do it.
0: I <laughs> think that's very hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> like the idea of neuroplasticity itself. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Richard Davidson.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Richard Davidson is William James and Vilas Research Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. There, he's also director of the Wasteman Laboratory for Brain Imaging and Behavior, and he founded and directs the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. We often tweet our interviews as they're happening, and the Twitter script goes up on our blog well before you hear the produced show by radio or podcast. This is just one of the ways you can be part of our production process and even join in my interviews. Our handle, at Being Tweets, and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash onbeing, where we have a real community of dialogue and reflection. At OnBeing.org, of course, you can find links to all of this and listen to this show with Richard Davidson again, download it, and pass it on to others. On this week's show site, look for two like-minded conversations that got a mention in this hour, one with John Cabot zinn we called Opening to Our Lives. Also, our show with the multitasking digital monk Mathieu Ricard on the authentic meaning and practice of human happiness. On Being Online and On Air is created by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, Susan Leem, Stephanie Bell, and Anne Breckville. Special thanks this week to Fee Ambo, director of the documentary film Free the Mind. Our senior producer is Dave McGuire, Trent Gillis is senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett.
1: On Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, the John Templeton Foundation, and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation.
0: Next time, David Sloan Wilson says evolutionary biology should be a force for social good like the best of religion. And he's applying this idea in a quintessential American city. Please join us. This is APM American Public Media.